0: Always,
1: Always. We were warned about spiders and the occasional famine. We drove downtown to see our neighbors, none of them were home.
2: We nestled in yards the municipality had created, reminisced about other, different places, but were they?
1: Hadn't we known it all before? In vineyards where the bees hymn drowns the monotony, we slept for peace, joining in the great run.
2: He came up to me.
1: It was all as it had been, except for the weight of the present. That scuttled the pact we made with heaven. In truth, there was no cause for rejoicing, nor need to turn around either.
2: We were lost just by standing, listening to the hum of the wires overhead. Hello, and welcome to the Always Already Podcast. It's John.
1: And Rachel. And
2: we have a very special guest with us today, Lindsay Whitmore, who is a good friend of Rachel and I, and a PhD student at Rutgers University in Women and Gender Studies, Lindsay, thank you for joining us. Hello.
0: Pleasure to be here.
2: Um, avid fans of the OiSori podcast (laughs) will of course remember Lindsay from the episode all the way back last summer about Latour.
0: Episode three, I believe it was. That is correct. The early days. That is
2: the early days. Um... Rachel, welcome back. I think this is your first episode since coming back from India.
1: I think it is, yeah. It's been a good, like, six weeks or something since I've recorded an episode. Yeah,
2: we've also been, like, recording in weird temporalities. Like, all none of our recordings have been anywhere near when we've released episodes until this one. We're going to record this and then, like, release it two or three days later. So um, what did we just read to our audience to open this?
0: So today we read Cruel Optimism by Lauren Berlant.
2: And the poem we read is an untitled poem by John Ashbery, which which Berlant puts in Chapter 1, Cruel Optimism, uh, which we read and we also read the introduction. And we read Chapter 3, which is called Slow Death. Obesity, Sovereignty, Lateral Agency. So we'll uh, we'll get to work on those after the summary that uh, Rachel has so kindly prepared for us all. Before we get to the summary, though, we have a couple important announcements to make. The first of them is that we're now on Twitter. You can now find us tweeting the Always Already crew at Always Already On. That's at Always Already On. O-N. Tweet, tweet. <laughs> so go follow us secondly is that
1: flock to us yeah!
2: <laughs> I love that um, secondly is that our reading of this text was suggested by listener Hannah so Hannah thank you
1: thanks Hannah. thanks Hannah on this episode of the Always Already podcast we discuss Lauren Berlant's Cruel Optimism published by Duke University Press in 2011 For our discussion, we read Chapter 1, Cruel Optimism, Chapter 3, Slow Death, Obesity, Sovereignty, Lateral Agency, and also the Introduction. Spanning the disciplines or fields of study, or whatever you want to call them, of affect theory and social theory and cultural studies, Cruel Optimism is about the politics of, as Berlant describes, having something you desire be an actual obstacle to your flourishing. Though the cruelty itself that this object seems to possess doesn't reside within the object per se. From the purview of the subject, the object can become cruel when the object that attracted you actually prevents the aim that compelled you to seek the object. So, for example, the good life, the Aristotelian concept that Berlant takes up, draws us in, but the very aim that we hope to fulfill by chasing after this good life That amoebic notion of capitalist success and political recognition can actually prevent us from achieving the very aims we had hoped by attaining this good life, whether that's comfort, leisure, self-confidence, security, etc. Throughout chapters one and three, Berlant describes our desire to, quote, return to the scene of the fantasy, end quote, which means to fulfill our dreams of attaining an object when really that object is incoherent rooted in a future that prevents us from living life for life in the present, for life itself. And this optimism, as Berlant describes, shows itself in, quote, attachments and the desire to sustain them. In other words, attachment is the, quote, structure of relationality. This optimism is, as she says, the scene of negotiated substance that make, makes life bearable as it presents itself ambivalently, unevenly, incoherently. In chapter one, Berlant explains, expands, excuse me, upon what this optimism looks like Um, and what she calls the cluster of promises is rooted in some future temporality, which may seem to be possessed by a person or an object. We grow attached to this object as a way of trying to fulfill a fantasy or future promise. When we lose the attachment to the object, it has the effect of making us feel like we can't continue living in the present. For our attachment to the object is what makes our present bearable. She then uses a poem from John Ashbery to illustrate the predicament of what she calls dead citizens, disillusioned by the future, excuse me, by the failure to achieve a certain dream. And it is this disillusion that manifests itself suddenly in the poem as not being afraid to lose. In this sense, she hints towards a fantasy rooted in not having a plan and in living for the self, ambiguously perhaps, rather than accepting the, quote, perverse shuttling between fantasy and realism that destroys people and nations. In chapter three, Berlant explores the concept of slow death, that wearing out, as she says, of a population over time. To illuminate this concept, she draws a distinction between the concept of sovereignty as described by, let's say, Bembe and Agamben, which focuses upon decision-making, in favor of one that shows the, as she describes, mundane reproduction of ordinary life. It's through her conceptualizing of sovereignty that she discusses obesity, a pathologized epidemic in the words of, or in the mind of the capitalist, illustrating the, as she says, embodied liabilities to social prosperity that these obese bodies or so-called obese bodies present to the capitalist project. And at the end of the chapter, she suggests how eating is one example and not exclusively can be one manifestation of the small pleasures that allow us to be floating sideways instead of stretching forwards into an amorphous future onto which we've projected a coherent and in reality unattainable notion of success. This floating sideways is one example of lateral agency, or hints at lateral agency perhaps. An ability to live in the present for living, rather than for the illusory good life, which in reality does not exist as some coherent object. Stay tuned for our discussion with guest host Lindsay Whitcomb, and decide for yourself whether this summary I just did was actually sufficient or accurate. So maybe a good place to start is to talk about what she means by optimism and what she means by cruel, um, since it is the uh, title of the book. And um, one thing that she kind of talks about in the intro and throughout is that optimism manifests in attachments. um, And she says, and the desire to sustain them. Um, So she sort of calls the attachment a structure of relationality. So if the attachment is kind of The structuring force between, let's say, a subject and an object of desire, then what would it be fair to call optimism? Is it the orientation towards that object? Is it a structure? Is it a, it's not a thing? What is it? That's a great question. She
0: <laughs> uses optimism in so many different and seemingly conflicting ways, almost mm. throughout the text. Um, I was really drawn to the way that she talks about it in relation to attachment because that brings up the cruel part of it mm. for me, and maybe I'm moving ahead of yeah, a little too much. Um, but you know, the title of the book is cruel optimism without any sort of qualification either, which I think is interesting. There's not a, yeah. no subtitle a that, yeah. you know, which we tend to <laughs> enjoy tacking on. I enjoy tacking on to my work. Um, but the cruel part of the optimism comes from the sort of inability to attain this thing that you feel positively towards and that you desire, but that would, which ultimately, is somehow detrimental to one's own flourishing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I like the way that she uses flourishing throughout. Um, I didn't actually read the entire text throughout, so I'm not sure how she takes that up in the rest of the book. Um,
2: and it kind of gets to be like a floating signifier, right? Or responsive to like different kinds of attachment, right? Because no one's going to have the same attachment to a cluster of, what does she say? Scenes and objects. Is that Mm -hmm. what she uses? Um, that promise some sort of good life. Um, right. So I think that, there's a reason that there's not a lot of kind of content to that. Mm-hmm. And like, I read into this, but I'm not sure if she intended us for to do so. But of course, something like flourishing, I'm going to wait, or the good life. I'm going to go back and be like, Oh, is she like gesturing towards Aristotle or like poking us in the ribs to be like, ha Aristotle. Cause that's what I think of when I think of flourishing. Yeah. But what I think is really interesting. In addition to the two elements, both of you just, or multiple elements you two just raised about optimism is that she really wants to emphasize the temporality of it. Um, And she she wants to temporalize a bunch of concepts throughout uh, sovereignty, right, agency, that kind of stuff, which she does a little bit more in the slow death chapter and at other points throughout the book as well. But optimism becomes about endurance, about survival, about uh, sustaining, right, because these attachments or these cruel optimisms are both sustaining and, like, Mm enervating. And that can only take place across time.
0: Mm -hmm. I think it's also a bit of an orientation. I mean, we had talked a little bit about how this work was making us think of Sarah Ahmed as much of affect theory does. And we
2: should note that before we got, we're at Rachel's apartment, and before we got started, Rachel walked over to one of her bookshelves and pulled out a couple Ahmed books just to have nearby in case.
1: Security (laughs)
0: blanket. So, yeah, optimism as an orientation towards the future, whether that's fulfilled or not. Um, And she references, you know, Munoz and and others in the introduction in terms of other folks who have taken up optimism or hope. Um, And she doesn't really seem to traffic in the discourse of hope so much. Um, But I think that it is an orientation forwards and backwards at
1: the same time. And at the beginning of chapter one, she she also talks about the cruel part of the optimism. And it's interesting because it it goes to what you were saying, Lindsay, about the kind of sometimes conflicting ways perhaps that she uses it. But in the intro, she says something about all attachments being cruel in some way. Mm. Um, but then the way she's kind of suggesting finding ruptures later, kind of call that into question actually. Mm-hmm. But, but um, there's one point where she says the cool, cruel part is the compromised conditions of possibility, mm-hmm. which is interesting because it brings in also that sort of structural environmental question that mm. changes or impacts our ability to attain that which we've imbued the object with. And also I think the idea that um, she says losing the attachment is the sense of not continuing on living, even if it threatens your well-being. So the idea that your living endures in the object is also part of that, that cruelty.
2: Maybe a couple quotes here might be nice. Um, so first I'm looking at page, bottom of page 24 onto 25. So she writes, <clears throat> but some scenes is picking up kind of where Rachel left off with one of her points But some, Berlant writes, but some scenes of optimism are clearly crueler than others. Mm -hmm. Where cruel optimism operates, the very vitalizing or animating potency of an object slash scene of desire contributes to the attrition of the very thriving that is supposed to be made possible in the work of attachment in the first place. Then the other quote I was thinking of is on to page 28 the top of page 28, the conditions of ordinary life in the contemporary world, even of relative wealth as in the United States, are conditions of the attrition or the wearing out of the subject. Mm -hmm. And the irony that the labor of reproducing life in the contemporary world is also the activity of being worn out by it has specific implications for thinking about the ordinariness Mm -hmm. of suffering, the violence of normativity, and the technologies of patience that enable a concept of the later to suspend questions about the cruelty of the now. And so another thing this book is doing, in addition to all the things we've already said, is trying to connect this to, you know, we maybe shorthandedly call it like the neoliberal world around us, right? Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Which I think actually that's one place where her emphasis on the ordinariness and the mundane works really well, because there's a place also in the intro where um, she... She makes a comment about um, she critiques notions or, or concepts of neoliberalism um, that are that are uh, presented as if neoliberalism has uh, coherent intentions rather than being something much messier than that. that so it's not simply the unknowing subjects um, own subjectivity is formed and that's it, um, which it, which I think is really interesting because that sort of does fall more under a no way out kind of paradigm um and so i think that's one place the um the everydayness or the mundane ordinariness in the reproduction of life works really well with her analysis of like neoliberalism
0: yeah i struggled a little bit with the way that she was using ordinary throughout Um, i mean i so much of how i think about the ordinary is Inflected through Kathleen Stewart's Ordinary Affects, um, which is a very different way of approaching and articulating and performing the ordinary. Um, and an interesting thing that I noticed actually when I was reading the acknowledgements, which I have started doing quite religiously because it's juicy, (laughs) um, is that she dedicates the book to Kathleen Stewart. Um, and so they are, you know, interlocutors for sure. Um, and friends, it also seems. So in terms of thinking about how Stewart kind of affects the ordinary through her work, through these sort of vignettes and these kind of scenes of kind of unfolding affective pressure. Um, That is so kind of compelling and forceful for me in terms of how I'm grasping what the theory is exactly. And I know that it's a really also non-conventional way of writing. Um, And so I struggled some with kind of getting into this book, like that, that it's a book in affect theory and it's it's about affect and affective attachments, but that there was some kind of this sort of blockage for me in a way yeah. in terms of like relating this to the ordinary and like how mm. how does the ordinary actually surface in this book? Um, you know, it's it's through obesity and, um, you know, the sort of cultural text that she's reading. Yeah. But... At the same time, what she's saying is so relevant to kind of everyday life, but it's, yeah. it's hard. It was hard for me to make those connections explicitly.
1: Well, that's actually where, I mean, one of my questions was also about the danger of romanticizing resistance. And I feel like that can be done in the context of looking for places of rupture or resistance in the everyday or in specific actions that are not necessarily collectivist transcendent consciousness changing raising actions at the structural level Um, and in that sense she does talk about the everyday in theoretical terms you know in very in highly theoretical terms and so um, i wanted to see i agree with you i wanted to see more examples of like what does a rupture in time or like a suspension of the slow death look like in lived example?
2: I mean, I have, that's a lot to think about. I have several responses. First is that I was also thinking of Stuart a lot as well, Lindsay. I mean, you turned me on to reading Stuart in the first place. Um, and <clears throat> especially at the point where I found they like, converged the most was also, it was actually interestingly enough, the poem that we read to open where at the end yeah. when Ashbery says the, the line is something about the wires overhead, yeah. the, hum, the hum of the wires overhead or something like that, because Stuart at multiple places in Ordinary Affects talks about affect in terms of electricity and energy and yeah. talks about, like, the subject as a live wire is, I think, what she says at one point that, like, conducts affect or something. I know she's uses live wire, and I forget exactly what comes after that. Um, so I was thinking about that there. Secondly, I wonder if it's... If, like, the operation of cruel optimism in the world or in academia or in our personal lives or some, like, assemblage of those things prevents one from being able to, like, access cruel optimism in the everyday, in the way both of you, like, described being blocked by, blocked from yes. accessing it in some way, like, to what extent do our own cruel optimisms, like, prevent us, <laughs> our own cruel, optimism, cruel optimism, prevent us from, like like grasping or apprehending cruel optimism as a book or as a thing that's operating in the everyday. And I have something else, but both of you are making vibrant <laughs> faces. Of yeah. Theory.
1: Or just, I mean, not to be like too self-referential, but to what extent does the tools were given, do the tools were mm. given and we try to attain an approach in academia, prevent us from describing and writing about and thinking about the very things we're trying to describe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I like physically resisted this book for a very long time. And <laughs> physically. I would like kind of trash talk it without even really knowing what I was talking about. Which now that John has like explicated the process, I think I understand it a little bit clearer. Um, but yeah, I mean I read this a little bit like academic self-help. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: there's another, that, another interesting connection to Stuart, right? In Stuart's depression book.
0: Yeah. Um, the, the self-help, component. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, the, um, how could you?
2: <laughs> yeah, seriously, how could I?
0: <laughs> the self-help component of it was so strong for me. Like as someone that's like, for instance, trying to quit smoking right now. I mean, like, these ideas of doing things that, like, we expect fulfillment from but are continuously disappointed by, um, it was so real. And, like, I I can get that because, or I can get part of it at least, because I'm reading at this certain level or something. Um, But I was a little disappointed by, Mm -hmm. like, the forcefulness of what she was saying and, like, the non-translatability of that to like very specific real life examples. Yeah. I was thinking mm. lots about drugs when I was reading this book. Mm. Um, a lot of my work is focused on addiction and recovery and kind of practices of care from within experiences of vulnerability. Mm. Um, and so I find it useful, but the translation process is also extremely difficult for me.
1: I was also kind of, um, it was interesting her the way she describes the relationship between the object and the subject. I'm Hmm. waiting for John to make a face. I'm (laughs) not going to bring up, you know, who Uh, Teddy, (laughs) Teddy, (laughs) Um, but I am going to say, I am going to bring up Ahmed and I am going to say, she talks at different points. She clarifies that, um, the, the feeling, the feeling associated with the object does not reside in the object. It's not a, a property of it. Um, It's sort of part of the structural relationship, the attachment itself. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I wanted to read, hear, see, concretize more how the stickiness, if you will, like the associations between (laughs) how it is that um, things we attach to objects or presume are innate to that object or property of them impact that object because that object often is real people so Mm. if we're talking about slow death well slow death is also impacted by like you know the racialization and the gendering the sexualizing of people and like stigma of let's say drug users Mm. since you brought that up like those things and so it's like how is that also how is the object impacted I guess that, yeah. that was missing for me.
2: No, that's a good question. That's a really, really good question. Another, like, Ahmed-related question or connection that interested <laughs> me is in The Promise of Happiness when Ahmed talks about how, like... The, the object that's supposed to provide happiness can never actually, like, return the happiness that it promises, like, back to the subject.
1: Mm. Like the nation, and then she mentions yeah. patriotism also, so yeah. there's a lot of overlap. Which goes
2: that. back to some of Berlant's earlier work as well, right? Huh. Yeah,
1: I'm not sure why, but, like, this is making
0: me think of the um, cover of yeah, the book in a certain way, <laughs> uh, which is strange. I mean, it's a it's a dog wearing... Kind of a collar, like it looks like a like a big Elizabethan collar, mm-hmm. um, or a cone, possibly. And the dog has this kind of like strange, like fevered look on its face. <laughs> and there's a woman that's on the ground. The and dog presumably her is
2: blind face. in one eye, maybe.
0: Yeah, blind in one eye. Um and so Yeah, I mean, in terms of thinking about what kinds of affects are attached to objects and become kind of stuck to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, the woman is, like, hiding her face on the ground, um, which...
2: Or has fainted, or has been, like, hit, and is, like... covering an eye, Well, we'll put the cover image in the uh, show notes, so you can look at it there, audience, but...
1: She looks kind of vanquished, and the dog looks triumphant. And Mm -hmm. she's also wearing, like, white gloves of bourgeois purity. (laughs)
2: Yeah, absolutely. And looks like a fancy red dress. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And a braid, which the dog is standing on. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're right. Yeah.
2: So the image is If Body colon Riva and Zora in Middle Age from the artist Riva Lair, which interestingly, so the... Uh, image is Riva and Zora, and so it's of the artist in some format.
0: Uh, that's a self hmm. portrait. Yes, of hmm. sorts. Of sorts. <laughs>
2: hmm. I mean, one of the things kind of lurking through these recent parts of the conversation we've been having is the way that affect and then also kind of, the way that affect works or doesn't work in the text, and then also what we might say about the method, such as it is, of the text. Do you have, like, thoughts more explicitly about one or both of those things?
1: Speaking of method, actually going back to the introduction on page three, I'm just going to go ahead and read a paragraph. Uh, Cruel optimism does not cover the entire second half of the 20th century into the 21st, though, nor is it a thorough expose of the state's withdrawal from the uneven expansion of economic opportunity, social norms, and legal rights, that motored so much post-war optimism for democratic access to the good life. Instead, taking up mass media, literature, television, film, and video that appeared between 1990 and the present, it seeks out the historical sensorium that has developed belatedly since the phantasm- phantasmatic part of the optimism about structural transformation realized less and less traction in the world. So, um, Emphasis on the second part of that, um, I think that it goes back to your question of the flourishing and is the goal mm. of the book to to uh, mm. look at the failure of the good life, the failure of the flourishing through these historical sensorium parentheses, whatever that is.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a proprioceptive history, she calls it also in the introduction, a kind of proprioceptive history a way of thinking about represented norms of bodily adjustment as a key to grasping the circulation of the present as a historical and affective sense. Um, So, sensorium, sense, temporality, these are all kind of key components of her method, it seems like, um, which then kind of get deployed across a range of, you know, poems and films.
2: Yep. Stories... Records. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Records.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's pretty explicit that, like, she's not going to take up any kind of ethnographic material or
1: yeah.
0: um, diaries or letters. Um, that, that this is all sort of getting tracked through cultural objects.
2: Yeah.
0: In a sense. Um, but proprioceptive history. Like, what does that mean? Got me pondering. Can you show so, me what? That so, right so, proprio... There.
2: Oh, my God. This is like, I'm forgetting my Masumi. Um, right, because Nassim talks about proprioception. That's like, if I remember correctly, the like actual visceral bodily reaction. That's, but it happens like before we perceive it. Right? It's not. It's not perception. It's proprioception. Right. Mm. So it's like it's like almost muscular is the wrong word, but like visceral. It's like on that level, as opposed to a level that we can perceive or feel or identify or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right, that's, I think, that's proprioception. I don't know if she's using it in exactly that same way. I forget if there's a Masumi note there or not, um, or anything. And surely, surely others have talked about it, but that just stands out the most to me. But yeah, and that's, that's inherently very, very difficult to write about because in some ways the register of the proprioceptive is one that defies representation and legibility in language.
0: Yeah, I mean, and then she's talking about using that as a way of thinking about represented norms of bodily adjustment. Hmm. Um, So there's this kind of attention to comportment and um, I guess almost non-conscious forms of reaction. I think that's right. um, Which I guess is affect um, in in a certain sense. And that goes with
2: some of her efforts to challenge... Concepts like agency or sovereignty, right? Because if we're thinking about these sub or un or pre-conscious sort of bodily adjustments and movements, right, it's not that we could go ask the subject who is slowly dying and exercising lateral agency, explain to me how exactly you are slowly dying and responding to that through lateral agency, right? That's not a question anyone could go ask a subject, so I think maybe the one of mm-hmm. the points is to say the only way to access something like lateral agency or the best way of challenging a concept mm. like sovereignty is through this proprioceptive history or focus on historical sensoria. Sensoria or Sensoria. Cool, that sounds better.
1: <laughs> but that also, I mean, it, it's sort of the irony of sometimes I'm reading, um, you know, writing on embodiment. and. Yeah. It, it ironically brings me the farthest from, mm. um, you know, embodiment as possible because it gets more and more abstract in describing the materiality of the body and the lived experience of the body. Yeah. So it, I did find kind of that irony, and I struggle with in my own work too. And like, I
2: raised my hand, while Rachel. Was talking about <laughs> hand.
1: Dude, we've all, like, we're all writing about things that like we
2: fall into. No, that I, of... in, that's what I do.
1: Yeah, But I mean, I, I did feel like that on page talking about lateral agency, it's almost like in, in calling for a different understanding of a concept. So for her, it's sovereignty in chapter three, um, and calling for one that adopts a more embodied approach. I actually feel farther from in some mm. ways understanding what sovereignty is and how agency can thwart slow death. So on page a hundred, she says, um, The chapter closes with a meditation on lateral agency, speculating about subjectivity and self-interruption. It argues that in the scene of slow death, a condition of being worn out by the activity of reproducing life, agency can be an activity of maintenance, not making, fantasy Mm -hmm. without grandiosity, sentience Mm -hmm. without full intentionality, inconsistency without shattering, and embodying alongside embodiment. So I'm with her. On the fantasy without grandiosity, but does grandiosity always have to imply some sort of capitalist notion of the good life? Can Mm. grandiosity be something different? Mm. And um, sentience without full intentionality. Well, why are we giving up on full intentionality? Why is that an impossibility? Inconsistency without shattering. Do we sometimes need to shatter for the revolution to come? You know, like, and then maintenance, not making but but what about world making? Yeah. What about So so I saw what she was doing on the one hand and on the other hand I I felt like is this sort of a settling?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking a lot about again Muñoz when I was reading that um in terms of the the kind of possibilities that he writes about that are not necessarily, you know, kind of directed by agency or intentionality, right. but that are kind of pr- productive in a in a not negative sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. I struggle with kind of where where this is taking us, mm-hmm. and maybe it's not taking us anywhere, and maybe that's why I'm struggling with it. Um, <laughs> it could be. I want to go somewhere. <laughs> And this is just kind the queer of... queer
2: utopian horizon. Right. I
0: want to move towards the queer utopian horizon always. Um, and this is not really...
1: It's almost like negating it in a you sense. You think so? I don't know. Yeah, because horizon implies something that is... Re- that requires making and shattering. hmm In a sense.
2: I mean, yeah, that's a really good question. Like. Can you have Munoz in Berland? I mean, it's a little simplistic, but a really hard question because yeah. I, mean, I was just writing some about Munoz uh, with the other friend of the podcast, uh, Joanna Tice. Um, and because on the one hand, I think about Munoz and the way he talks about queer time as imminent, right? right? So it's not something that's totally transcendent, like forget and let's just let's just shatter, right? It's not that. But queer time is also ecstatic, and thus implying a sort of shattering, right? So I don't, I don't know if you can have Munoz's queer hope or queer time or queer optimism and Berlin.
0: I mean, there's just like such a tenderness. Or, they, or to, are they such
2: like different projects? That right, the that's question true. is even wedge I don't eligible. think they are different projects.
0: I mean, she's she, citing them directly yeah, in, her in the introduction. Yeah, she talked about in the introduction, right? As people who she's sort of in conversation with which complicates it all for me (laughs) because I could take them as two sort of entirely separate meditations on optimism and hope, but she's intentionally bringing them into conversation.
2: Um, I have a better question then, I think. (laughs) Is Munoz's queer optimism cruel? And this gets back to a question Rachel posed before we started recording, Hmm. which is what other kinds of optimism can we talk about or not talk about?
1: I think also it it hit over the head for me that what she's doing, the way in which her project is political is by critiquing concepts rather than suggesting how to break out of Mm -hmm. slow death.
0: No, that's really helpful for understanding the way that this book works. Um, I was saying earlier that I didn't really read it in order. I read the, the introduction last. Um, and so there's all these terms like genre and situation and scene That I was trying to kind of infer meaning from, but because she's really using concepts to make her point and making her point through the use of concepts, like, it's helpful to read the introduction before you read the rest of the book, um, because I think it does situate the very specific and embedded ways that she's using these words to make...
2: That raises a question to me about how I received an experience reading the book, where... I I love the work that she's doing on the concepts but sometimes like I can't access or I can't get to some of the more concrete things. Maybe this is actually a somewhat similar relation to the text that you two had, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, you know, and and I'm not it's not original for me to say this, but you know in the slow death chapter, like the even though I disagree with her critique on of Mbembe Foucault, those sorts of folks which maybe we will get to um, yeah, I think that the, the concept of slow death, the way that she talks about sovereignty, the way that she talks about agency are all really, really important conceptually. But I could kind of take or leave the way she talks about obesity specifically. Yeah, or I really that? find in the cruel optimism chapter, the concept of cruel optimism really fascinating. And, you know, there I kind of, I thought the kind of textual cultural examples there she used were somewhat more illuminating and Um, kind of animating to me. But still, uh, my interest, and this may just be my interest in me coming from a different sort of perspective, um, that I'm not a cultural studies person, um, that I'm not, per se, a queer theory person, even though I'm interested in and do some queer theory, right? But the, like, I want to see what concepts I can go take from this. Mm -hmm. Or it's, and so I don't know to what extent it's that, in relation to what extent it's this book, something about the style or something about it lends itself, maybe to just, you know, taking your concepts and mobilizing them elsewhere. In some ways I felt didn't like make any sense. it was,
1: it did. And I think it yeah, was it in some ways a more passive subject than in, in Ahmed's promise of happiness. So, um, in, in the conclusion to Ahmed's promise of happiness, and I'm not just bringing this up cause I love <laughs> Ahmed, but actually they're very, very similar projects. Um, She says that um, the book has considered unhappiness as judgmental as an affective point of disagreement. If acts of revolution of bringing the walls down can be understood as protests against happiness, we can also understand such acts as protests against the cost of agreement. So Mm -hmm. I see Ahmed's notion of happiness and... um, Berlant's notion of um, the object to what you aspire, towards what you aspire because of the associative feeling, which is maybe happiness or whatever you want to call it, as having a huge cost to agreeing to do that, to forsake whatever it is that would actually make you, you know, happy. Um, And it's interesting because in some ways I see one and emphasizing the death side and one emphasizing the life side, like Mm. Berlant's talking about the slow death and the cost and Ahmed's talking more about an active subject that decides to remove happiness from the realm of ethics and decides to uh, affirm unhappiness as a way of historicizing the very trajectory towards the object. Mm. So I guess in that sense, I see them as having kind of um, similar critiques of the object and the attachment to it. But um, from different sides of life, if that makes sense, which leaves less action ability in Berlant's book. Now I've used Ahmed. I can put her.
2: <laughs> <in>.
1: <laughs> There's still another. <laughs>
2: Do you want to maybe go talk about the slow death obesity chapter some more specifically? Sure. I mean, we should mark out that you know, from what I can gather, I'm not super in tune with like fat studies, um, or like fat positivity movements. Um, but I take it that they, I, I gather that they really don't like this chapter.
0: Yeah, no, I think when you were talking about the kind of prob like the distinction between concept and application that the slow death chapters, a great example of, um, kind of the failure of the concept to meet the realities mm. of, <laughs>
2: Sorry, I'm looking at Rico.
0: Adorno. <laughs>
2: um,
0: yeah, I mean, a lot of people find her use of obesity and its connection to slow death super problematic. Um, I agree. I sort of implicitly affirmed that um, before reading it. But now that I've actually read it, um, I see how that works in the way that she is Actually pretty dismissive of other modes of embodiment that are not um, pathological. That, like, she sort of codes obesity and fatness as pathological. Mm-hmm. But, like, but she's trying to undo that at the same time. That's the hard so that's, thing. The, that's the tricky part about it. Um, but we were also talking earlier about uh you know two or three footnotes in which she sort of directly addresses um you know whether whether fatness can be a mode of resistance um and she kind of tersely rejects it, which made mm. me mad yeah. and sad also and um, confused and confused exactly. Um, And wondering, like, how much of the sort of obesity rhetoric she was actually replicating by not kind of actively engaging with the critiques that body positive feminists or,
1: um, you know, fat activists, you know, quite forcefully make. Well, in a way, she was kind of repathologizing and taking away the agency of the very thing she was trying to critique capitalism doing the same thing. And so at one point she says something like, and I'm like paraphrasing a bit like, uh, um, sultily here, (laughs) but something like, so
2: sultry in your (laughs) paraphrasing. Is that what you were going for?
1: Like she's, yeah, she's basically like, you know, well, you could choose to be fat for like, intentional revolutionary purposes that resist you know normativity but we all know that's not healthy or something i mean that's like a huge yeah. paraphrase. Here, the on. quotes
2: on 107 and i'm sorry i hoarded the book from rachel so no, i made purpose, her paraphrase fine. um <laughs> quote on page 107 unless one wants to see being overweight as a protest against hegemonic notions of health and wealth there's nothing promising, heroic, or critical about this development. And then that leads to a long footnote where yeah, she talks about how every time she gave a talk um, that ended up as this chapter, she writes, sensible people have argued back that obesity and overweight are forms of resistance to the hegemony of the productive slash bourgeois body, as well as to white class aspirational beauty culture. And then she goes on to talk about her counterargument, argument And then the other... Kind of footnote that we were talking about is um, footnote 20s or endnote 26 in chapter three, where she writes Oliver Campos and Klein fight the co- quote unquote cold facts of the obesity epidemic with their own cold facts, many of which are taken from. "Quote unquote" fat activists who proffer their own anti-normative analyses of what should be cons- con- what should constitute definitions of health and sickness, mm-hmm. speaking a debunking language in the register of scandal to drown out the register of crisis. They do not write with a nuanced understanding of their participation what? in the discursive and always processual construction of disease historically. And then she cites the works themselves. That's gets back, back to. What oh, you so were saying, crazy. Lindsay, and you ended your comment, Lindsay, by asking a really interesting question And in what does she not, what does she, and this is a different form of maybe asking what Rachel just asked too, in what way, or what does Berlin miss or what is she unable to access that would help her, like, help develop her critique or her argument by not engaging in the fat studies or fat activists, right? What gets missed? that would actually be useful if mm-hmm. mobilized in her projects? Mm-hmm. All right,
1: it's a really good question. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um,
2: I don't have any answers because I don't know those discourses well enough.
0: Neither do uh, I necessarily from like a theoretical perspective, but just sort of being immersed in body positive communities, like I can kind of feel the visceral response to that. Um, and it's not good.
1: Well, so you said that, you know, she kind of, she relies upon sort of pathological understandings of like fatness rather or causes mm. rather than body positive or like agential ones. So I'm wondering what would non pathologized ones like lend to her project? What would looking at, you know, fat activism from a agental, agential body positive lens lend to her critique of slow death yeah. First of all, it would be pro- it would undo her argument in some ways because it wouldn't be about the move towards death and it wouldn't be about capitalism happening to you. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a question as to whether it would still be lateral agency because I think that her critique and she gestures at this in the couple of footnotes that we pointed to are that too often these other discourses about fatness as counter-hegemonic or something end up partaking in the same language of agency or yeah. sovereignty,, yeah. And, or stuff like that that yeah. she's trying to work against, and that she argues is kind of impossible within what the three of us might call neoliberalism for shorthand,
0: yeah, I mean, it just makes me think about like what about like queer pleasures, you mm. know, like bodies and pleasures yeah. right? I mean aren't those relevant to a kind of the the sort of uh rethinking of agency that she's trying to to make us get to here? Um, there's, there's kind of none of that in her discussion of quote-unquote obesity and what it can or cannot disrupt.
2: Except for the very last sentence of the slow death chapter. This is page 119. Um, it's a very long sentence. I'm trying to find where it starts. Uh, but for most, potentiality within the overwhelming present is less well symbolized by energizing images of sustainable life And less guaranteed by the glorious promise of bodily longevity and social security than it is expressed in regimes of exhausted practical sovereignty, lateral agency, and sometimes counter absorption and episodic refreshment, for example, in sex or spacing out or food that is not for thought. Right? So that's where the, and there the like sex and eating and the way she talks about eating. At the end of the chapter, come back together in the way that maybe you're suggesting. Yeah, is. yeah. So maybe that's one of the things she misses.
0: I mean, she gets she also at the end of the chapter talks about eating as spreading out for the moment and mm-hmm. not towards the future. Yeah. Which like there there kind of seems to be a negative valuation that either she attaches or that she is attaching kind of by by the like the, the way that the discourses work around eating and fatness um but yeah i just wonder what would happen if we thought about the pleasures of spreading out for the moment and the way that that might
1: actually constitute other
2: futures i think she's interested in that
1: but also like i'm wondering i mean one thing that i wrote in the margins was is all productivity bad yeah and my other question is like is all are all relationships that are connected somehow to the future, inherently cruel or negative or normatively bad. And so I guess that begs the question, are there forms of pleasure that require not a here and now, but that also aren't sort of, um, embedded in the impossible conditions of possibility or whatever she says in the introduction, (laughs) you know, like is all futurity bad (laughs) is all product. What if, what if. Um, pleasure is a, is a way of feeling productive, but not productive in the capitalist sense, not productive in like, now I feel better, ready to go back
2: to work. Right.
0: Yeah. I don't know if implicitly that's kind of what she's suggesting, but doesn't Mm. articulate clearly. 'Cause they're just there there felt like there was something missing from where she was taking this kind of spreading out yeah. in the moment. Like you're saying maybe that is what she means.
2: This is also maybe a function of the chapters that we focused on for this because mm-hmm. she gets to like anti capitalist art and anti capitalist activism and post-work activism in the later chapters of the book, I think in maybe like six, chapter six or seven. Um, so it's partly, I think an effect of us not reading those chapters for this, (laughs) um, instance, but the two works that I was thinking of are Munoz again, right. in thinking about futurity. And then also Kathy Weeks, which Rachel suggested before the podcast is maybe something you had in mind too. um, And the way that, and I wouldn't have thought about it unless you had said it, so thank you for that. Um, But the way that Weeks talks about utopia, and the utopia is at the same time both a demand in the future and a demand in the present, Mm -hmm. right? And so I wonder if by, you know, if we are overly concerned about cruelly optimistic futures that we imagine, are we going to miss the possibilities to mobilize those futures in the present mm. to do otherwise or be or become otherwise?
1: And I think mobilizing, though, I don't know if that's a question she's interested in, like managing. Over I think moving. in the later
2: chapters, I think she is. Maybe. OK, really? Maybe not in the realm of like what's the relationship between futurity and present. Yeah. But I think in other ways, maybe.
1: Okay, yeah, I mean, uh, definitely, we, we only are focusing on two chapters. But in chapters one and three, I didn't feel like a mobilizing um call, necessarily. More of a theoretical, conceptual call. I have a question. Yes. <laughs> so, as Lindsay mentioned, there's no um subheading to the title. It's just cruel optimism. So, if we <laughs> had, <laughs> um, if we had oh, to no. do the, like annoying slash really fun acad- academic oh, man. thing and put a colon yes. after cruel optimism with oh. the having what would be That's really, I mean, you should have
2: told us this so we could have prepared Rachel. I'm sorry,
1: I just
0: depression, yeah. depression, depression, depression.
2: I would call it something like cruel optimism, colon depression,
0: depression, depression, <laughs> depression. depression, depression. Like, That's I would... all I got from this book.
2: I would like something about so like attachments, life, and attachments, life, and unlivability, or something like that, is what I would call. What I would capture there. I notice <laughs> as you say that, Rachel. Though we're looking at Ahmed's book, which is still on the table, the promise of happiness is also a no colon. No, maybe title. that's
0: the secret to making
2: it big <laughs> But queer phenomenology does. That's true. The cultural politics of emotion in Ahmed is not, if I remember correctly. So, um, so yeah. now you have to answer the question, Rachel.
1: Cruel optimism, colon, women with dogs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so it, we're starting to maybe get to wrapping up, but before that I have two things I want to talk about, and this is putting you on the spot a bit, Lindsay, but maybe you could talk a little bit about how you're mobilizing Berlant in your own work.
0: Yeah, sure thing. Um, I'm in the process of writing my dissertation proposal right now, and so my brain is actually exploded all over everything, (laughs) Um, and I'm trying to pick it up and put it back together, um, but yeah, I have been using Berlin and slow death, um, in a little bit of, of the removed way that we talked about the possibility of kind of taking these concepts out and seeing what they do for us in other contexts. Um, so my project is about oppositional economies and ethics of care. Um, so thinking about the ways that people take care, do care, perform care, experience care um, from within experiences of debility and toxicity.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, and so slow death for me is an interesting way of kind of articulating this wearing out that the concept of debility also references. Um, and debility is something that Puar uses following the work of Julie Livingston. Um, and so I mean, I find it helpful for kind of, I guess, uh, supplementing the kinds of um, affective, structural, environmental interfacings that this idea of debility provokes um, and that slow death and lateral agency are kind of things that I'm interested in putting in conversation with care. So when we move care out of a kind of "Quote unquote hegemonic setting," um, you know, attached to institutions, attached to systems, attached to the you know the neoliberal production of a subject of health. Mm-hmm. Um, what what happens? Like, what does care look like in other spaces? And I don't want to kind of propose this sort of like resistant idea or like yeah. care as resistance which I think is something that Berlin is helpful for avoiding. Absolutely. Um, That like her kind of hyper contextualized and also critical engagement with these ideas of agency actually did lead me to thinking alongside people like Mel Chen, for example, or people who are thinking about the the ways that um, ecology, environment, space, are part of the kinds of relations of care that people are undertaking um, that may not even be just about people, um, but they can be about matter and forces mm-hmm. and affects. Um, so yeah, I guess it's it's most helpful for me in relation to explaining and expanding this concept of debility, um, which marks the, the way that I'm understanding care to function
2: oppositionally. That's really awesome. And I've had the pleasure of reading iterations of the dissertation proposal, which is Ugh. really, really good. Another person that takes up this concept of slow death in really interesting ways is Paisley Curra. So you're in good company, Lindsay. Great. <laughs> um, he talks about it some in the context of prison in general and trans prisoners in particular. So, I mean, I think that I mean there are other people who I think are taking this approach that we talked about, right? Can these concepts travel in this work? Um, and then the other thing, this is like the most solipsistic way to read this book, um, is that like being on the academic job market is the most cruelly optimistic thing that I've maybe ever done. Slash, I mean, this is not an original observation. Like, there's a Tumblr post going around years ago about academia and grad school and cruel optimism that we'll try to find, um, even though Tumblr's a little more ephemeral, uh, (laughs) and put in the show notes. But, I mean, it's just, you know, it's this attachment that is maybe not conducive to my my sustaining and living and maintenance and such
0: it's a hard one because yeah. I actually am an optimist yeah. <laughs> and I think that's. we optimist. I'm a queer optimist. And I think that that's partially why, I mean, John and I go back and forth all the time around these issues of like investment and hope or not. And I don't know if it's just like a basic kind of pre-constituted orientation <laughs> or if it's related to one's own experiences and struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, but optimism for me actually has been somewhat of a survival strategy. I think it's about not getting crushed by the actually really like shitty reality of life. Um, And so taking that away feels hard for me. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why to call that cruel is like actually a little offensive. to me. So this gets back
2: to the question that we started with and that Berlant to some extent starts with, or not start with, but it's early in the book of is all, all optimism is necessarily to some extent cruel, right? Some is cooler than others, but like, does that mean we jettison optimism completely?
1: Well, that's, I guess why I, was thinking about this idea of like contingent optimism, or like (laughs) maybe that's a subheading yeah, cruel optimism (laughs) contingent (laughs) optimism (laughs) still cruel (laughs) cruel optimism (laughs) Yeah, is there a contingent form of optimism or a a sort of like cautious optimism, people talk about cautious optimism in like common speak, and you know everyday speak, and it's like I find a home in that, I guess, in a way. Yeah, I'm happy to live there, too.
2: But it's that's really, really interesting, because that goes then to, like, the... That necessarily will lead some to critique the, like, oh, so you're just a reformist, Ugh. right? Well, you know what? I, which, 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 which I'm not down with. Right? I know
1: you're not, but, like, I'm sorry. It's, like, so annoying to me. Like, are you down with the revolution or are you a reformist? It's, like... Labelably whatever the heck you want. Whatever the fuck you want. Oh, thank really, you. Like, we have an explicit you know? rating. It's <laughs> like, label, it's like, label, it, not that you're here. doing this, but like, you know, it's like, label it whatever you want. It is possible that like, cautious, I mean, if cautious means like, I will sort of critically head towards being a confident and successful capitalist <laughs> subject, like that's a very limited way of looking at it. It could also be that you have the own, your your own ingenuity and creative like uh wherewithal to have your own horizon that you're going towards and you're cautiously moving towards it so i don't think that like caution implies you're accepting the parameters of what you're trying to get to as the final object i think it can be a different thing altogether yeah which maybe i think relates to like queer optimism
0: yeah sometimes you just want a new couch, and it's going to make you feel nice. <laughs> What's <laughs> so wrong with that?
2: <sighs> the other thing that was actually with <laughs> the Probably question, and <laughs> this, again, takes me back to the way that Munoz and Weeks talk about uh, utopia and mm-hmm. the relationship between futurity and the present. And I believe we have at least uh, the Weeks book coming up soon on the, on the schedule. Awesome. So we'll get into that issue again final thoughts squad
1: uh, uh, Lindsay I can't wait to read your uh, your project oh uh, yeah I need to pick your brain someday we do need a brain picking session we actually like for a, so long literally long. but uh, we can save this
2: <laughs> so what yeah, you
1: like her I like
2: her <laughs> <laughs> um, we're gonna come back and we have definitely a dream to analyze and I think we maybe also have an advice question to answer yay We're back. It's time for everyone's favorite segment, my Tumblr friend from Canada. And we're going to invite our guest, Lindsay Whitmore, to read the advice question. And then later on, the dream that we're going to be analyzing so, Lindsay, can you read us this question of Rusty from Boston?
0: Sure. So, Rusty from Boston says, um, Hello. I'm a hairy lady, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on body hygiene at school or work in the summer for women who don't shave their legs or armpits. Is this Freaky or acceptable? Should I shave? Should I hide it? Thanks.
2: Alright, I am the least qualified to answer this question is a cis dude where my hairiness is acceptable, so I will defer.
1: Um, I think it depends how much you are willing to to bring an Ahmed. Um, <laughs> pay the cost of disagreement. <laughs>
0: honestly. Yeah, no, I think like it could be a daily source of tension, possibly. I mean, I also am a hairy person who does not shave in the summer and I also don't go to a regular office environment. Um, so I feel like that affords me some level of shielding from these sorts of issues, which is, um, lucky for me. Yeah. Um, But if I were going to an office, I don't know. I would feel the pressure more directly, I would say, especially in the summer. Um, I don't know if body hair is a distraction. I don't even know if I should be worried about that. Um, I don't honestly think that
1: I would shave for those circumstances, but... Yeah. I think this might be a cop-out, but it's just whatever you're comfortable with. Because to each person, shaving is, like, a different meaning and not shaving is a different meaning, and so it's really, like, going back to the idea of resistance and management, <laughs> quite honestly, mm-hmm. it's, like, such a personal thing because it's whatever meaning you're making of your decision.
2: Yeah. Because it, I read into the question, right, Rusty wrote, started by saying I'm a hairy lady, right? So it seems like they she has some attachment to, like, the body hair mm-hmm. as a thing, so that makes it harder in some way
0: yeah i'd say keep on rocking it rocking
2: rock it rusty <laughs> all right our next question and no, excuse me not our next question it's time for our other favorite segment one or several wolves are you ready for some dream analysis Lindsay? absolutely all I've right been waiting all day as usual <laughs> as usual uh the dream is anonymous
0: okay here we go After applying and reapplying to Hogwarts, I finally get in. (laughs) Congratulations. The experience in the first couple weeks were nothing like I had anticipated. I felt lonely and isolated, and nobody really talked to me. Every time I tried to use my magic, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. I remember there were moments where I would go into several rooms, and there would be, in the ceiling corners, large nests of granddaddy long legs, like from the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They would burst and scatter and terrify me. I'd run in a panic. I was ready to give up, but, inst- but, I instead, of- but instead, Professor McGonagall was there, and she was Tina Turner. She broke out into one of my favorite songs, which is Fool in Love, which of course I started singing along to. She also showed me how to dance to it. She then proceeded to show me how to do the various spells that I could not do. I complimented her legs as I remember she actually took out insurance on them if something ever happened to them. (laughs) But she seemed slightly offended. At least that's the feeling in the dream. The next morning, in the dream, all the rooms that I had visited with granddaddy long legs were completely clean. I went outside and was able to make a large tower shape out of the ocean water with my magic wand. And people stared and seemed impressed. Mm -hmm. Then I woke up.
1: That's so great. I love that dream.
0: I expect there to be at least one phallus joke in this analysis.
2: (laughs) I'm assuming they mean one phallus joke per person. Initial thoughts?
1: Well, at the end, you triumphed by building a penis out of water. (laughs) Congratulations.
2: (laughs) That everyone was impressed with, so congrats.
1: (laughs) The the thing that I thought
0: immediately of was, like, desire for mentorship. Mm -hmm. I don't know why Mm -hmm. that came to me, but this feeling that, like, we're sort of powerless under the circumstances of a a school or academic or you know performance space Mm -hmm. and that we need somebody fabulous to validate Mm -hmm. us um mcgonagall tina turner hybrid would work for me
2: and Hmm. what's really interesting is that this dreamer um has like the lack of confidence but it's through mentorship that they then gain the confidence, right? Because the end, when they build the water phallus tower, <laughs> um, it's not with the help of Tina Turner slash McGonagall, right, right? If I remember correctly, themselves. right? So it's like maybe some sort of hope or expectation that through some experience of mentorship or some kind of relation with others that one like gains the power to go do what it is their, what like their task or their project is in whatever form. I think Rachel's drawing a phallus tower in her notebook, sketching, doodling. Am
1: I? Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I think also there's an imposter syndrome yeah, fear going totally. on here, too. Like, you just get admitted to Hogwarts, which is, okay, so I'm good enough to get it to this level, but can I hack it at this level? Yeah, now and then, I can't do these basic things I'm expected to do. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm entering a new precipice or a transitional point, and I've made it this far, so I must be made of something, but... Can I cut it at the next level? That's mm-hmm. great.
2: What are the spiders? Yeah,
1: I was just going to ask. The it'd
2: spiders
0: be, in the corner.
2: It'd be interesting to know if this person was, like, scared of spiders and bugs or not. That's so I think that the spider had a different valence on, like, if in their waking life, what that relationship was.
1: That's a very So
2: nice tell us all your phobias when you send in dreams <laughs> listeners in the future. That
0: would be helpful. <laughs> I don't know, I'm thinking something like, so they're ceiling, their are nest ceiling, like se- nests in the ceiling, yeah. which are making me think of something like the kind of like haunted
2: past. That's interesting, I was gonna yeah. go with ghostly. Myself. Yeah, something
0: ghostly about it, like they're sort of exploding on you. At it's like only like a
2: quasi presence, right? They're in the corner, they're in the ceiling. But they come out. Exactly. Too. So it's like, that which can or maybe should or is desire to be like pushed off or shoved to the side but keeps like intruding in mm. on their like psyche or in like this particular imposter syndromey whatever experience. Mm-hmm. And
1: I think it's also interesting that they're in the ceiling, right? Because the ceiling, thinking about it like how, how high can you go? How mm, far can you achieve? Uh, yes. And it's like, okay, I, I'm going towards this. <laughs> yeah. and I like Break like, through. Can, can I break through Spider-Man? <laughs> or like, can, will these elements of my past or will these ghosts yeah. prevent my ability to aim
2: high? Yeah. Aim high, dreamer. That's you did it.
1: You made a penis uh Yeah, with your
2: magic wand. (laughs) I wonder what that is.
1: The other thing I was just thinking is maybe just food for thought. We could do a thing where when we're analyzing the dream, one of us draws the dream and then we upload it to the website. Because I'm a consistent doodler and so I think I just drew the dream. All
2: right. Well, we're going to put that on the website if Rachel consents. Great. <laughs> Any other thoughts for the, our dreamer? Dream
1: on, dream on.
2: <laughs> As always, send in dreams and questions to alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail or tweet them to us at always already on. Any last thoughts for the day? Evening, I guess at this point. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, kosh optimism. Thank you, Lindsay, for joining us. Thank you, Lindsay. It was quite an honor and privilege for us to have you here oh, on the wow. podcast again. So
0: um, my and pleasure.
2: And I think next time, I believe Emily's back. Well, she's back in town, but I think she'll be back on the podcast again. The strange temporalities of podcasting. <laughs> Rear their ugly head like spiders in the ceiling. Bringing it back. All right. Until next time, it's Lindsay and Rachel. Rachel.
0: And John.
2: Bye.
0: Bye. Bye.
2: joining us on another episode of the Always Ready Podcast, which is created by B. Altman, Emily Crandall, Rachel Brown, and John McMahon. Visit our website, podcast.wordpress.com. Email us text you'd like us to discuss, advice questions to answer, and dreams to analyze. Alwaysreadypodcast.gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Always Already On. Subscribe to our S-S feed and subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a rating as well. Thank you, as always, to B for the cover of Landslide to open. The show, and thank you in this case to my dear friend Jordan Cass for his cover of No Surprises in Between Segments. On the next episode, we'll be talking about Maurizio Lazzarato's Signs and Machines, Capitalism and the Production of Subjectivity. Talk to you then. Bye.
1: Critiquing. I wish lost my turn. It happens. <laughs>
2: We're gonna come on it. I am
0: just staring at Dylan Thomas like come <laughs> um, back to me. something.
1: <laughs> thing. I know. That's
2: that tie will bring it back to you.
1: Uh... <laughs> mm-hmm.